A Psalm for Solomon. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with justice. The mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy and shall break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear thee as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days shall the righteous flourish, and abundance of peace as long as the moon endureth. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he shall deliver the needy when he crieth, the poor also, and him that hath no helper. He shall spare the poor and needy, and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. And he shall live, and to him shall be given of the gold of Sheba, Prayer also shall be made for him continually, and daily shall he be praised. There shall be a handful of grain in the earth upon the top of the mountains. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things, and blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun. Those of us who live in a democracy rarely think about kings and queens. If you've ever visited a country where they do have a regency, you are quite impressed with two things. One, there are those who think it's the greatest thing in the world and they would hate to see anything happen to it. And there are those who think it's the biggest waste of money in the world, and they'd like to get rid of it. To a Jew, of course, the king was very important. God had established that David's family would be the royal family in the nation. And since David, the king, was God's king, by God's appointment, 
he was representing God on the earth. He was the one who was seeing to it that the laws of God were being fulfilled. But much more than that, God had ordained that the Messiah should come through the kingly tribe of Judah, and therefore it was very important for the Jews to have their king. Now, most of you here tonight, if not all of you, are pretty well versed in Jewish history, and you remember that when David was dying, he appointed that Solomon should be the next king. Unfortunately, when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam did not follow and do what God wanted him to do, and under his leadership, the kingdom was divided. And you had Israel and you had Judah. Israel, the ten tribes in the north, Judah, the two tribes in the south. This, of course, was the consequence of Solomon's sin. Now, Psalm 72 was written for Solomon, and it focuses on the subject of kingship. And even though you and I live in a democracy, as Christians, we have to appreciate the meaning of kingship as it's given to us in the Word of God. I think that Psalm 72 will help us to understand what it means for Jesus to be king. And Psalm 72 performs for us three very important functions. And if you allow these functions to be real in your life, I think you'll understand, we'll understand the meaning of the kingship of Jesus Christ. Because Psalm 72 functions as a prayer. Verse 20, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. That verse not only concludes the second book of the Psalms, but it seems to be the conclusion of Psalm 72. Here is David praying for Solomon. So Psalm 72 functions as a prayer. Secondly, it functions as a prophecy. It's obvious that this psalm is not talking only about Solomon. In fact, some of these verses could never refer to Solomon. But thirdly, it also functions as a promise. You and I today can experience the kingship of Jesus Christ. We have often sung, King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. And I have to ask myself repeatedly, is he truly the king in my life? He's the prophet. He has revealed God's truth to us. He's the priest. He prays for us. He intercedes, and he wants to be the king in my life today. Let's take this first function. Psalm 72 functions as a prayer. David was going to die. And David was going to leave the kingship, the throne, the scepter, to Solomon. Solomon was a young man, an inexperienced man. Solomon was taking over a great deal of wealth. David, during his lifetime, had gathered together a tremendous amount of wealth, most of which was going to be used for the building of the temple. Solomon had never fought in any wars. That's all David had done. Solomon was an inexperienced young man, and so David did what every father would do. He prayed for his son. Psalm 72 seems to be a prayer of David for his son Solomon. 
Now you remember that God had ordained that David's line should maintain the throne of the land, of the nation. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 7, Second, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 7. David had desired to build a house for the Lord, and he went to his chaplain, Nathan, and Nathan said, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. Now, Nathan hadn't prayed about this. And God said to Nathan, uh, You go tell David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. Now, the word house there has two meanings to it. David wanted to build God a house, meaning a temple. God said, I'm going to build you a house, meaning a family. And God said to David that uh, he was going to, through David's line, bring the Messiah to the earth. Well, I don't know how much of this we should read, but let's begin, well, at verse uh, 12 of 2 Samuel 7. God is speaking to David, and when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thine own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, this is Solomon. I will be his father, and he shall be my son, if he commit iniquity. I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men, but my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. Now here's verse 16, an amazing promise. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee, Thy throne shall be established forever. Now, no king ever had a promise like that. Well, David was so overwhelmed at this. In verse 18, he went in and sat before the Lord. That's an unusual way to pray, but he did it. Who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that thou hast brought me thus far? And this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God, but thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And is this the manner of man, O Lord God? No man can say your throne's going to endure forever. In verse 20, David talks like a little child. Little children use their own first name. They'll come and say, uh, Bobby wants a cookie or, or uh, Susie wants um, a toy. And he says, and what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. And he goes on to praise God for what he has done. Verse 24, for thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel to be a people unto thee forever. And thou, Lord, art become their God. That's an interesting verse for people who say Israel has no future. Well, this is what happened. Solomon did uh, take the throne, and he became a great failure. The first years of his reign, as you know, were wonderful years. He was known for his wisdom. He was known for peace. He was known for plenty. Money was plentiful in Israel. Luxuries, they, didn't, they were all luxuries. All necessities were met. Luxuries abounded. 
And then Solomon turned his heart against the Lord, and he got involved with foreign, idolatrous wives. And God said, all right, I'll keep my promise. The chastening is not going to come in your day for David's sake. It'll come in your son's day. And it did. And there was division, and there was trouble. And finally, both Israel and Judah were taken into captivity. Israel to be scattered. Judah returned, then to be scattered. This is why the Lord Jesus Christ said of himself, I am greater than Solomon. Remember that? Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, a greater than Solomon is here. In what way is Jesus Christ greater than Solomon? You see, Psalm 72 is David's prayer for Solomon. And David prayed and said, oh, may there be righteousness, but there was idolatry. May there be justice, but there wasn't. May there be expansion so that the borders of the land extend to the ends of the earth. But that didn't happen. There was division. May the kings come and bow down before him, but they didn't. That wasn't David's fault. Here's a great man of God who knew how to pray, and he prays for his son. And his son deliberately goes out and disobeys God. My friend, even the prayers of the Lord Jesus Christ, if I'm deliberately going to disobey him, can't avail for me. How is Jesus Christ greater than Solomon? Well, Solomon was known for his wisdom, and yet he ended his life doing some very stupid things. Jesus Christ is the sum total of all of God's wisdom. All of the fullness of the wisdom of God dwells in him. Solomon was known for his wealth. If you and I had lived in the kingdom during Solomon's day, money would have been plentiful. It just would have been marvelous. Over in, the, in Kings, he tells us what a marvelous, marvelous kind of a splendor they had. First Kings chapter 10, verse 21. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver, which was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. How about that? Nobody worried about silver. There was plenty of silver available, but they didn't pay much attention to it. He had a navy that brought back gold and silver and ivory and apes and peacocks. The last two I could do without. So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth in riches and for wisdom. Well, the trouble is all of this wealth came from mainly his father and the tributes of people who were under fear. But the Lord Jesus Christ has wealth far beyond that. Where in the world is Solomon's wealth today? And yet the wealth of our Lord Jesus Christ his spiritual wealth as well as his material wealth far exceeds everything. And we today share in the riches of his glory and the riches of his grace and the riches of his wisdom. Solomon was known for his work. He built the temple. Beautiful thing. People used to come from all directions just to see Solomon's temple. Even the disciples in our Lord's day, when they saw the rebuilding that Herod was doing, marveled and they said, Lord, look at these stones. Look at this building. And Jesus said, the day is going to come when one stone won't be on top of another one. 
Yes, Solomon built a temple, but it was wrecked. His sin helped to wreck it. Jesus is building a temple that never will be destroyed, and we're a part of that temple. Jesus Christ is mining living stones out of the pit of sin, and he's cementing them by his grace onto the rock, Christ Jesus, and he's building that beautiful temple. When Solomon finished his temple, God moved in. When Jesus finishes his temple, it's going to move out. Solomon was known for his uh, disobedience. He didn't walk with God. He was a disobedient person in the latter years of his life. You read Ecclesiastes and find out how sour he became. He had music and he had wives and concubines and he had fountains and buildings and libraries filled with philosophical books. And his conclusion of the whole thing was vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Not so with Jesus. Jesus was the poorest of the poor, and yet he was able to say, I do always those things that please him. And he had a deep abiding joy that Solomon never had. Solomon was known for his wife. He went down to Egypt and got himself a princess, thereby cementing political relationships with Egypt. Our Lord Jesus has gotten himself a bride, but his bride is much greater than the bride of Solomon because his bride is his church. It didn't cost Solomon anything to get himself his bride. Any girl that didn't want to marry Solomon was uh, something wrong. But Jesus Christ had to shed his blood to get his bride. So this psalm is a prayer for Solomon who failed. And behind it we see Jesus Christ who is greater than Solomon who did not fail. Now Psalm 72 functions not only as a prayer, but it functions as a prophecy. And uh, you may disagree with me perfectly all right. Here at the Moody Church we don't make uh, big uh, issues over areas of disagreement that uh, born-again believers may have. We've learned how to disagree without being disagreeable, but I don't think anybody here tonight would disagree with this. Psalm 72 says that Jesus Christ one day will reign literally on the earth. A friend of mine attended a school where they did not teach this kind of doctrine. They taught doctrine that says all of these Old Testament prophecies are now being fulfilled in the church. You see, we have a word for this kingdom that our Lord is going to reign over. We call it the millennium, two Latin words that mean a thousand years. In the book of Revelation, they lived and reigned a thousand years. When the thousand years were over, some five or six times in Revelation chapter 20, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. And so we take this literally, that one day Jesus will return to earth and he'll reign for a thousand years. The first event on the calendar, of course, is the rapture of the church. He comes in the air for his church. Then after the tribulation period, he comes to the earth with his church. And that's when uh, verse 4 is going to be fulfilled. He's going to judge the poor and save the needy and break in pieces the oppressor. He's going to come to that battle of Armageddon and defeat the enemy. Then he's going to establish his millennial reign, a thousand-year reign. Now, there are those who don't believe this, and therefore we call them ah, millennial. The little Greek letter A means no millennium. Ah, no, 
And so my friend went to a school that was a millennial. They did not believe in the literal interpretation of the promises to Israel. But you know, God has said in the word, as long as the sun and the moon endure, there will be a nation of Israel. So my friend was in class one day and the professor was waxing eloquent on the fact that there will be no future for Israel. Israel has been, is done for and now all these promises apply to the church and my friend put his hand up and the professor said yes and he said, sir, the sun came up this morning. Now the professor knew the scriptures. It says that as long as the sun endures, there will be a nation of it. So he changed the subject. Now, I'm glad that I can just take my Bible and read it without complicating things, and I can read Psalm 72 and say, here is a prophecy. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run. You see, our Lord is going to sit on the throne of David. Now, this was said to, um, to Mary before Jesus was born. Chapter 1 of Luke Chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke, the angel comes to Mary and tells her she has found favor with God. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, says verse 31, and bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. I was teaching this one day in a Sunday school class at another church, and some lady put up her hand and said, David's throne is in my heart. I said, ma'am, I deeply appreciate what you mean by that. Yes, he should sit on the throne of our hearts. But it doesn't say this. You aren't his father, David. You don't belong to the house of Jacob. You see, what he's, what he's saying here is simply that all these promises are going to be fulfilled. Now, Satan knew this. Satan knew that one day Jesus would reign over the nations of the world. That's why he said to Jesus in the temptation, all of these kingdoms will I give you and the glory of them if you'll just fall down and worship me. He knew it was a valid promise. Back in Psalm 2, God the Father said to God the Son, Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. He said, I have set my king upon his holy hill of Zion. Satan is not an amillennialist. Satan knows that one day Jesus is going to reign over the nations of the world. That's why he died on the cross. Now, the first three-fourths of Psalm 22 is the crucifixion. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They may tell all my bones. He goes through the whole agony of Calvary. But the last one-fourth of Psalm 22 says, The kingdom is the Lord's, and he's going to reign. That's why he died. It's rather interesting that Pilate should put over his head, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king. Not the prophet the king of the Jews. Now, would you just glance down Psalm 72 and notice what it says about his kingdom? We're talking about his literal reign on earth. Verses 1 through 4, the character of his kingdom. There are three words that describe the character of his kingdom. Righteousness, justice, peace. 
Now, there's no righteousness today in this world. There's not much justice today in this world. There certainly isn't a great deal of peace. And yet when Jesus reigns, there is going to be righteousness and justice, verse 2, and peace, verse 3. That's the character of his reign. In verses 5 through 7, you have the duration of his reign. Some kings don't last very long. In fact, back in the Old Testament, some of them lasted only a few days. Well, the duration of his reign is given here. As long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations, as long as the moon endures. Now, there's going to come a time when there'll be no more need for the sun and the moon. At the end of that thousand-year period, when God finally cleans everything up and wraps everything up, John says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. And he tells us there's not going to be any need for the sun. The lamb is going to be the light thereof. No more need for the moon. So as long as the sun and moon endure until God ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, he will reign. And then he's going to reign forever and ever and ever and ever over the new creation. 8 through 11 tells us the extent of his kingdom. Well, from sea to sea. Now you get your map out and uh, trace that from the river to the ends of the earth. The river, of course, is the river Euphrates. Now, Solomon never had this. Solomon had the largest area that any king had as far as his dominion was concerned, but he never went to the ends of the earth. In fact, uh, verse 9, the wilderness, verse 10, the coasts, Verse 11, all kings, all nations. That's the extent of his kingdom. How far? The whole world. Now, Solomon never had that. We're told in verses 12 through 15, the subjects of his kingdom. Who is going to be in this kingdom? The needy, the poor, those that have no helper, the poor, the needy, the souls of the needy, these are going to be people who are redeemed. Verse 14, he shall redeem their soul from two things, deceit and violence. That's what runs the world today. Deceit and violence, lying and murdering. And who is the liar? And who is the murderer? Satan. So what he's saying in verse 14 is Satan is not going to be around to create problems. Of course, you know why. At the beginning of this thousand-year reign, Jesus Christ is going to see to it that Satan is bound for a thousand years. I have a pastor friend who tells me that Satan is bound today. He said, we're now living in the thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus, and Satan is bound. And I always answer when someone tells me that with the words of the great and godly James M. Gray, who said, quote, it must be an awfully long chain, unquote. Someone else had said, if Satan is bound today, I'd sure hate to be around when he's loose. And a lot of truth to that. And so the extent of his reign, the whole earth. The subjects of his reign, redeemed people who have been set free from the bondage of Satan. 
Notice finally the glory of his reign, verses 16 to 19. Verse 16 is kind of an interesting picture. You can't grow a great deal on the tops of the mountains. Folgers puts coffee there, I understand. But uh, down in Palestine, you're not going to put a great deal of, on the tops of the mountains. You know what he's saying in verse 16? There's just going to be a handful of grain planted in the tops of the mountains. But when it grows and reproduces and becomes fruitful, it's going to be like the forests of Lebanon. He's talking here about fruitfulness. You know, the world is concerned today about uh, lack of food. We have polluted the land and the water and the earth. We've got problems. But during that kingdom, that's not going to be a problem. There's going to be productivity and prosperity. His name is going to be glorified. Verse 16, the city is going to flourish like a garden, like the grass of the earth. I'm glad the Lord mentions the city here because I love the city. I know people who don't. But I'm glad to know that during the kingdom, there's going to be blessing and prosperity and beauty and peace and righteousness in the cities as well as out there in the country. His name shall endure forever. All men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Verse 19, the whole earth filled with his glory. We won't go into it, but I suggest you trace the references on that verse all the way from the book of Numbers down through the entire Bible, you find this theme. The whole earth shall be full of his glory. When Israel came to Kadesh Barnea and refused to go into the promised land, God said, okay, I'm going to wipe out this generation, take the younger generation, build a new nation. But I want you folks to know something. One day the whole earth shall be filled with my glory. Isaiah peeked into heaven one day, and he heard the, the angelic choir singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. You can't see much of it now. We're living in Genesis chapter 6. The whole earth was filled with violence. That's where we're living. But one day when Jesus Christ reigns, the whole earth shall be filled with his glory. You see, God's not through with this world. God's going to solve the pollution problem, the political problem. He's going to solve the crime problem. He's going to solve the education problem. He's going to solve the economic problem. It's all going to be found in one person, in one place, doing one thing. That person is Jesus Christ. That place is the throne of David in Jerusalem, and that one thing is reigning in glory. And what a privilege we're going to have as his bride to reign with him. I think that our faithfulness to the Lord today is going to indicate somewhat of the work we're going to have to do during the kingdom. Well, Psalm 72 functions as a prayer and it functions as a prophecy, but I want to close on a very personal note. It functions as a promise. What he's saying in Psalm 72 is this. Jesus Christ will reign someday over this earth. Why not let him reign over your life? That's, all, that's what he's saying here. I think that verse 6 is one of the most beautiful verses anywhere in the Psalms. In fact, it ties into something that David said before he died. Our choir has sung this particular scripture on several occasions. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23. These are the last words of David. 
Now, if you had your last words, what would you say? Well, verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was in my tongue. That takes care of the inspiration of the Psalms right there. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. Now, what did God say to David? He who ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Now, if he does that, what will happen? He shall be as the light of the morning. When the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by the clear shining after rain. That's a beautiful picture. You know what he's saying? He's saying that the president and the senators and the congressmen and the governors and the mayor and people who are in places of authority should be like the sunrise. No clouds, nothing to hide the light, like the beauty of the sunrise. Now, we have beautiful sunrises that we have seen, but they tell me that over in the Holy Land where David lived, there's nothing quite like the sunrise. Last week I read the life of um, Oswald Chambers, the great devotional writer, and uh, part of the life had his journal in there. And day after day his journal would say, quote, we had another beautiful sunrise this morning. You see, he lived in Egypt. That's where he ministered, down in Egypt. And he would describe how gorgeous was the sunrise. That's what David's talking about. He's saying that when a person rules over others, it should be like the dawning of a new day, the bright sunrise. And it should be like the refreshing rain that comes down and brings forth the fruit. He compares the Lord Jesus to a beautiful spring shower in Psalm 72, verse 6. Somebody tonight says, Pastor, suppose I turn my life over to the Lord. Suppose I say, okay, be my king. Be the Lord of my life. Rule over my life. The scepter that you have is a right scepter. Rule over my life. What will it be like? Verse 6. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. And as a consequence, what kind of fruit will there be? In his days shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace as long as the moon endureth. You know what he's saying here? He's saying when you turn your life over to the Lord, his rule is a gentle rule. It isn't a storm that comes in. It's a gentle rule. The rain that comes down, it's a fruitful rule. He brings out of your life all that's there. That's the tragedy of sin. Sin robs you. That's the tragedy of Satan. Jesus said of Satan, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's what Satan does to you. You turn your life over to the devil and he will rob you. He'll move in and he'll just cut down that grass. He'll rob you of what you've got. He'll destroy. But you turn your life over to Jesus Christ and it's like the beautiful rain that comes down. And as the rain comes down, the fruit of your life comes out. It's the most beautiful thing to experience and to see. It's also like the dawning of a new day. When Jesus Christ is the king of our lives, every new day is a fresh new day. Every new day, the Lord Jesus Christ sheds his light upon us and he guides us. And the whole earth is full of his glory. 
Somebody here tonight perhaps has been fighting his rule. I feel sorry for you. I really do. I'm not waiting for the millennium for Jesus to reign. Many of you are not waiting for the millennium for Jesus to reign. He reigns right now. Those two words at the beginning of the psalm, righteousness, peace, righteousness, peace, that's what he is. He is Melchizedek. He is the king of righteousness. He is the king of peace. And if you want righteousness to grow out of your life, if you want peace to come into your life, then you've got to stand under the showers of the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of you know what I'm talking about because you've experienced this. You've turned your life over to him. And you can say, Pastor, I know what you're talking about. He makes my life bright like the dawning of a day. He makes my life beautiful like clear shining after rain. He makes my life bountiful like the fruit that comes after the rain has fallen. May I remind you that Jesus Christ could not sit upon the throne until first he'd hung upon the cross. Jesus Christ could not carry the scepter until first he'd carried the cross. Jesus Christ could not wear the crown of glory until first he'd worn the crown of thorns. David killed others to secure his throne. Jesus let others kill him to secure his throne. I wonder if somebody here tonight doesn't want to make him king. Perhaps you've never made him savior. Then you should do that. But oh, my friend, don't resist him. Don't resist him. Kiss the son. Bow before his scepter. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thank you, Father. Thank you that we have already entered into his kingdom by being born again. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who assures us that one day we shall reign in glory. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that Jesus Christ today is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Though he is not yet on David's throne, Yet he is at the throne of glory and that throne of grace. Father, we want to be his willing subjects. We would not say we will not have this man to reign over us. We would say reign supreme, O Lord Jesus. Reign in righteousness, in peace, in fruitfulness, that our lives may be to the glory of Jesus Christ. I pray for that one here who has never been saved. Oh, that he might come and trust him. I pray, Father, for any of us who need to submit that we might do so and experience the gracious, righteous, glorious sovereignty of our loving King. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.